All right. Thank you for coming, especially those of you who weren't here last night. This is Lecture 2, The Bishop's Bible and Its Relationship to the King James Bible. Now, let's review briefly Lecture 1. We talked about King James, the Church of England, the Hampton Court Conference, the original tongues, which is the Hebrew and Greek text upon which the King James Bible was based. We looked at most of the former translations. Those are the earlier English Bibles upon which the King James Bible was also based. And we looked especially at the work and influence of William Tyndale. Now, the main thing you need to remember from Lecture 1 is how the authorized version is both a translation and a revision. Lecture 2 covers the Bishop's Bible and its relationship to the King James Bible, as well as other English Bibles before the King James Bible that are not listed in the rules given to the translators. Now, you may remember this from last night. This is the translator's rules manuscript. And I pointed out that there are two rules that relate to the Bishop's Bible. That would be Rule 1 and Rule 14. And here they are again. Now, some say the King James translators didn't follow the rules, and the King James Bible is not based on the Bishop's Bible. Well, they're wrong. They don't know what they're talking about. And I'll prove that tonight. Now, let's take a closer look at the Bishop's Bible. Here's the title page from the first edition, 1568. There's no dedication to Queen Elizabeth, but her image appears on the title page. There were 18 editions of the Bishop's Bible. The last one was 1602. Plus, there were many separate printings of just the New Testament. The second edition in 1569 had the Old Testament revised, the third edition, 1572, had the New Testament revised. Other editions have slight variations from each other. The 1572 edition has a parallel Psalter. It has the familiar text of Psalms from the Great Bible printed in parallel columns with the text of the Bishop's Bible. The Great Bible Psalms were familiar because of their appearance in the Church of England's Book of Common Prayer, which is their order of liturgical worship that they followed in the church services. All later editions of the Bishop's Bible, except the 1585 edition, have the prayer book version of the Psalms substituted for the Bishop's Bible version of the Psalms instead of both versions in parallel columns. Now, the first edition of the Bishop's Bible begins with 46 pages of preliminary material, including an almanac, a lectionary, a calendar, a genealogy, and various tables. Most of this material is not found in later editions. However, there are three things I want to point out that are found in most later editions. The preface. There's a six-page preface to the Bishop's Bible, and then there's also a one-page preface to the New Testament. There's also a prologue. The first edition of the Bishop's Bible and many editions afterward 
included Cranmer's prologue from the Great Bible. And I talked about that last night. And then number three, the table of contents. And you'll notice the Bible is divided into five parts. Now, each of these parts had its own title page. In the center, you have the general title page. And then the second title page was Joshua through Job. Then you had a page for Psalms through Malachi. Then you had a title page for the Apocrypha. And then finally, a title page for the New Testament. So each section had its own title page and its own pagination. All right, here's the uh, first rules that were given to the bishops' translators and the King James translators. And the one on top is given to the bishops' Bible translators. The one on the bottom I've already pointed out to you. And if you notice the phrase in the, the first paragraph, which has to do with the bishops' translators, it says the common English translation used in the churches. That was the great Bible. So the bishop's Bible was based on the great Bible. But you should remember from yesterday that the great Bible was based on the Matthew Bible, which was based on the Tyndale Bible. All English Bibles, up to and including the King James Bible, go ultimately back to Tyndale. All right, here is Matthew Parker, 1504 to 1575. He was the overseer of the bishop's Bible. He was educated at Cambridge. He became a chaplain to Anne Boleyn, Henry VIII's second wife, and then chaplain to Henry VIII. He became an administrator at Cambridge. He favored the Reformation. He was the Archbishop of Canterbury from 1559 until his death. Parker wrote the preface to the Old and New Testament of the Bishop's Bible. He also translated Genesis, Exodus, Matthew, Mark, and 2 Corinthians through Hebrews. He assigned the rest of the biblical books mainly to bishops in the Church of England. Now, because of this, very early in its history, this was called the Bishop's Bible. It was the first translation by a large group of people. Most of the time, the initials of the translators were appended to the end of the book or books they translated. Now, we don't know if or to what extent Parker revised the translation of the bishops when they finished their individual translations. The completed Bible was authorized by the bishops, but it was never licensed by the queen. Now, previous to this, there were several failed attempts of the bishops of the Church of England to get together and translate the Bible. The details of all these attempts are explained in my book, The Making of the King James Bible. All right, here's a page from the Bishop's Bible, 1568, first edition. There are 57 lines per page. It's larger in size than the Great Bible. The text is in black letter with square brackets around words instead of italics 
to indicate that they are not actually found in the original languages. There are contents at the head of each chapter. Now, like the Geneva Bible, the chapters are divided into verses, and each verse begins on a new line. The first edition of the Bishop's Bible also contains over 100 engravings, portraits, and maps. And it has notes and references in the margins. Here are some phrases first found in the Bishop's Bible. Some of the very familiar phrases in the authorized version actually first appeared in the Bishop's Bible. So, the Bishop's Bible is the last of the early English versions mentioned in Rule 14. Now let's look at something interesting related to those versions. Pretty interesting, huh? That's a joke. You can, you can laugh at that. All right, first of all, we looked at Tyndale. Number two, we looked at Coverdale. Number three, we looked at the Matthew Bible. Number four, we looked at the Great Bible. Number five, we looked at the Geneva Bible. Number six, I just talked about the Bishop's Bible. And then there's one more Bible we're going to talk about tomorrow night, the King James Bible. The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Probably just a coincidence, huh? Now, in Genesis chapter 1, here's something interesting. God said six times that the creation was good. But the seventh time, He said it was very good. The Bibles before the King James Bible were good, but the King James Bible is very good. Now, before looking at the relationship between the Bishop's Bible and the Authorized Version, there are five other English Bibles before the King James Bible that we need to look at. And here are the other English Bibles before the Authorized Version. So there were other English Bibles in circulation before the King James Bible, but they were not listed in Rule 14 that was given to the translators. Now, we've already looked at the Whittingham New Testament in Lecture 1 because of its intimate connection to the Geneva Bible. So that's why I don't have it listed here. We will now look at these other Bibles and then the relationship of the Bishop's Bible to the King James Bible. It should be apparent why these Bibles were not included in the list in Rule 14. Now, all of these Bibles but the Taverner Bible relate in some way to Latin. Until it was supplanted by English beginning after 1600, the language of religion, science, and scholarship for over 1,000 years was Latin. The Bible of the Roman Catholic Church during this time was the Latin Vulgate. And here are a couple pages from the Latin Vulgate. The Latin Vulgate was a translation of the Bible into Latin by the biblical scholar Jerome around 400 A.D. 
It eventually supplanted the various old Latin texts and became the official Bible of the Catholic Church. All Bibles were hand-copied until the invention of printing. And this was represented by the manuscript on the left, which is from the 12th century. Now, the first book of any importance printed using movable type was the Gutenberg Bible of 1455. And that was the first printed copy of the Latin Vulgate. Other printings followed. The Clementine Latin Vulgate of 1592, which was commissioned by Pope Clement VIII, was the official and authoritative printed Bible of the Catholic Church until 1979. The page on the right is from the Old Testament of that Latin Vulgate. Now, after the invention of printing, numerous other translations of the Bible from Hebrew and Greek into Latin were undertaken by both Catholic and Protestant scholars. Now, let's look at the five other Bibles before the authorized version. Here's John Wycliffe, 1324 to 1384. He was an Oxford theologian, an administrator, and a reformer. He's called the Morning Star of the Reformation. He was a prolific writer. He was known outside of England, which is very unusual for that period of time. He criticized clergy privilege, church corruption, the papacy, and the mass. He advocated that people should have access to the scripture in their own language, the vernacular. He was expelled from his position at Oxford. After his death, his writings were declared heretical. His books were burned. His body was dug up in 1428, and his bones were burned, and his ashes thrown into a river. Wycliffe is identified with the English translation of the Bible that bears his name, but we just don't know how much he actively participated in the work. The translation was certainly done by men close to him and inspired by him. It is now almost certain that Nicholas Hertford and John Trevisa were two of the translators. Hertford's name appears on two manuscripts of the Wycliffe Bible. Trevisa is mentioned by the King James translators in their preface as translating the Bible into English. Wycliffe is not. The Constitutions of Oxford in 1407 forbid uh, anyone to translate any text of Scripture into English without permission or read any such writing composed in the time of Wycliffe or since without permission. These Constitutions were in force during the time of Tyndale. Now here's a page from the Wycliffe Bible. Remember, printing did not begin in England until 1476. All Wycliffe Bibles were hand-copied. You have an early version beginning around 1382. It's very literal. The English follows the Latin syntax. Then you have a later version beginning around 1388. It has more simplified and polished English. There is no original manuscript of either of these. There are about 250 copies of the Wycliffe Bible manuscripts, and that's actually more than any other Middle English text. 
There are 20 whole Bibles. There are 90 complete New Testaments. There are some single books of the Bible. Now, the Wycliffe Bible was translated from Latin, not Greek and Hebrew. About 80% of the manuscripts are of the later version. There is also some variations in manuscripts. There's more variation in manuscripts of the early version than the later version. Some manuscripts are mixed with readings from the early and later Wycliffe Bibles. Some manuscripts are illuminated like here from the end of Luke and the beginning of John. Some manuscripts just had plain text. Remember, they're hand-copied so they could be customized. Now, there are some phrases in the King James Bible that are supposedly from Wycliffe. And these come mainly through the earlier English versions. The New Testament of the later Wycliffe version was not actually printed until 1731. The New Testament of the early version was not printed until 1848. The first printing of both versions of the complete Bible was done in 1850. Now, here's a picture you should recognize from last night. This is Miles Coverdale. He was the translator of the Coverdale Bible, but he was also the reviser of the Great Bible, and he helped to translate the Geneva Bible. But what I want to tell you about tonight is he was also the translator of one other New Testament. All right, here are some title pages from the Coverdale Latin-English Diglot New Testament. 1538 is when they were all published. Three editions. The New Testament appears in Latin and English in parallel columns. These images are not found in any book on the history of the English Bible. You saw it here first at Grace Baptist Church. Now here's a page from the third edition of the Coverdale Latin-English Diglot. The Latin text is printed in the inside column in Roman type. The English text is printed in the outside column in black letter. The English text differs from the text in the Coverdale Bible. It more closely follows the Latin. There are no prologues or notes, just scripture references in the margin. All right, then we have the Taverner Bible. 1539, here's the title page. Richard Taverner, 1505 to 1575, was educated at Oxford and Cambridge. He studied law. He briefly served in Parliament and was a justice of the peace and a sheriff. But he did have a reputation as a competent Greek scholar. And here's a page from the Taverner 1539 Bible. It was a revision of Matthew's Bible. It had a dedication to Henry VIII, but it really had no direct influence on the King James Bible. All right, let's go to France. Now, find Paris and note the town of Douai up near the top of the map. And then note the town of Reims, 
which is northeast of Paris. The first English Catholic Bible is called the Douay-Rheims Bible. Here is the title page of the Rheims New Testament, 1582. Now, in 1568, there was an English Catholic seminary founded in Douay, France. It was associated with the University of Douay. Many Englishmen had left England after the death of the Catholic Queen Mary and the accession to the throne of the Protestant Queen Elizabeth. Church and state. The English college moved to Reims, France from 1578 to 1593. The New Testament was published in 1582. It was translated out of the authentical Latin, which is a reference to the Latin Vulgate. The main translator was Gregory Martin, an Oxford-educated scholar. It contains a 22-page preface complaining about the Protestants most shamefully in all their versions, Latin, English, and other tongues, corrupting both the letter and the sense by false translation, adding, detracting, altering, transposing, pointing, and all other guileful means. The King James translators mention the translation of the Reims New Testament in their preface. Now, the Reims New Testament is actually closer to the King James Bible than modern versions. It does not omit certain verses like most modern versions omit. Here's a page from the Reims 1582 New Testament. It's printed in Roman type. It has notes in the outer margins. The text is in paragraphs with verse numbers in the inner margins. It has annotations at the end of most chapters, pointing out supposed corruptions in Protestant translations and also notes defending Catholicism. Other editions appeared in 1600, 1621, 1633, and 1738. It was revised in 1749. Now, before looking at the companion Old Testament translation, we need to briefly look at a man named William Folk. He lived 1538 to 1589. He was a Protestant preacher and polemicist, educated at Cambridge. He studied law, became a professor at Cambridge, and then an administrator at Cambridge. He was the first Englishman during the Tudor period to write a formal attack on astrology. He wrote various anti-Catholic works. He strongly opposed Gregory Martin and the Reims New Testament. And here is his work known as the Confutation of the Reims New Testament. Here's the title page. His work was published in 1589, the year of his death. And what he did in this work is he replied to the numerous end-of-chapter annotations found in the Reims New Testament of 1582. This is a work of over 1,000 pages. It was dedicated to Queen Elizabeth. It has a long preface attacking the Roman Catholic Church. Other editions were published in 1601, 1602, 
1617 and 1633. Now here is a page from his confutation of the Reims New Testament. The Reims New Testament appears in Roman type on the left side and the Bishop's New Testament in italic type on the right side. After each parallel chapter are reproduced the annotations of the Reims and the confutations of folk. People became familiar with the Reims New Testament because of this work. His confutations alone were published separately in 1834 as Confutation of the Remish Testament. All right, now we come to the Douay Old Testament. Here are the title pages, 1609 and 1610. Now, the Old Testament of the English Catholic Bible was translated after the New Testament, but it was not printed until 1609 and 1610 after the English college in France moved back to Douay from Reims. Again, the main translator was Gregory Martin. Volume 1 is Genesis through Job, put out in 1609. Volume 2 is Psalms through 2 Maccabees, plus the Catholic Apocrypha. That was 1610. Now, our Old Testament in our Bible ends at Malachi. The Apocrypha refers to other writings in the Bible that are not part of the canon of Scripture. All early English Bibles included the Apocrypha, but it was between the Old and New Testaments. The Catholic Latin Vulgate and the Catholic English Old Testament included books of the Apocrypha interspersed among the Old Testament books, plus Catholic Apocrypha that the Roman Catholics did not consider to be Scripture after the Old Testament. Now, the treatment of the Apocrypha by the King James translators was unique. And I have a whole chapter on this in my book, King James, His Bible, and Its Translators. Here's a page from the Douay Old Testament. Like the New Testament, it's printed in Roman type. It has notes in the outer margins. The text is in paragraphs with verse numbers in the inner margins. Unlike the New Testament, it only has annotations at the end of some chapters. It was reprinted in 1635. It was revised in 1750. It was not published in one volume with the Reims New Testament until 1764. Now we can return to the Bishop's Bible for the rest of the lecture. Here is the Bishop's Bible 1602 title page. The authorized version of 1611 was based on the last edition of the Bishop's Bible published in 1602. This is the official connecting link between the authorized version and the previous English versions. Now, there are six direct connections 
between the Bishop's Bible and the King James Bible. And here are the six direct connections. The translator's rules, Barker's bill, Samuel Ward's notebook, Manuscript 98, the Bodleian Bishop's Bible, and internal evidence. So let's look at each one of these connections. All right, direct connection one is the translator's rules manuscript. You will remember that the Bishop's Bible is mentioned in Rule 1 and Rule 14. It is the basis of the King James Bible. All right, the second direct connection is Barker's Bill. Now, Robert Barker, he lived 1570 to 1645. He was the printer of the authorized version. He was the official king's printer. He was the son of Christopher Barker, who was Queen Elizabeth's official printer. Barker was plagued by financial difficulties and involved in litigation. He actually spent the last 10 years of his life in debtor's prison. Through his descendants, the Barker name continued to be seen on Bibles until 1680. Now, Barker supplied 40 large church Bibles for the translators. We know this because he submitted a bill to the king, and the bill is dated May 10th, 1605. These church Bibles would have been copies of the 1602 Bishop's Bible. They were unbound sheets, and he charged the king 73 pounds, 6 shillings, and 8 pence. That's about $90 in today's money. All right, direct connection number three. Here's a picture of a man named Samuel Ward. He lived 1572 to 1643. He was the youngest of the King James translators. He was educated at and became a minister at Cambridge Colleges. He was a preacher, a scholar, and a moderate Puritan. He became one of King James's chaplains. Extant is his diary written during the years 1595 to 1599. It shows a man concerned about gluttony, pride, weariness in God's service, and inattention to sermons. Sounds like a diary of a Christian in 2016. Now, Ward was one of the translators of the Apocrypha. But something else he wrote is our third direct connection. And I also want to say that Ward's name will come up again in Lecture 3 in connection with two other things related to the King James Bible. All right, here is a picture of Sydney, not Ohio, but Sydney Sussex College in Cambridge. Samuel Ward was made the master of Sidney Sussex College, Cambridge, in 1610. He's buried in the college chapel. Now, while doing research on Ward in the archives of the college in 2014, Jeffrey Allen Miller, assistant professor of English at Montclair University in New, in New Jersey, made a profound discovery about Ward that relates to the King James Bible. Here is Samuel Ward's notebook. 
Professor Miller discovered in the archives of Sidney Sussex College one of Samuel Ward's notebooks. It is 70 small pages. It contains the earliest known draft of any part of the King James Bible. For centuries, Ward's papers in the college lay uncatalogued. They were not catalogued until 1985. The notebook was catalogued as Manuscript Ward B., and it was described as a verse-by-verse biblical commentary with Greek word studies and some Hebrew notes. Ward's notebook contains notes on the complete apocryphal book of First Esdras, nine chapters, and that's the first book in the Apocrypha. And then also it has notes on two chapters of another apocryphal book called The Wisdom of Solomon. It has to be dated during the period from 1604 to 1608. Now, here's the format of it. You have a verse number followed by a quotation from the Bishop's Bible, often just a word or phrase. And then you have an alternate English translation, sometimes with references to Greek and Hebrew. All right, here is direct connection number four. This is called Manuscript 98. It is a 208-page manuscript. It measures 8 by 13 inches. Each page contains four columns. The two inside columns are much larger than the two outside columns. Only the first two columns are used. The first small column contains marginal readings, Greek words, and scripture references but it's not used very much. The second and larger column contains the King James translator's rough draft of the epistles, Romans through Jude. This is a proposed biblical text by the Westminster New Testament Company of Translators at an early stage in the translation process. Now, I'll explain the Westminster Company in Lecture 3. So the King James Bible was both a translation and a revision. What you have here are corrected verses from the Bishop's Bible that are written out in this manuscript. Manuscript 98 closely follows the syntax of the Bishop's Bible. Now, you'll notice there's some blank space. You have verse numbers with blank space, and that signifies... Verses in the Bishop's Bible that were to be left unchanged. Now, there are 2,782 verses in the epistles of the New Testament, Romans through Jude. There are 1,769 revised verses written out in manuscript 98. There are 1,013 verses to be left alone as they read in the Bishop's Bible. Now, of these 1,769 verses written out, all but 21 of them have some revision of the Bishop's Bible. 21 verses read exactly as the Bishop's Bible because they were mistakenly copied from a corrected Bishop's Bible. Now, remember the 40 church Bibles. 
that the translator, I mean that the printer provided to the translators. One or more of these were corrected by the translators, assigned the epistles, and the revised verses were written down in manuscript 98. Some of these readings made it to the final uh, printing of the King James Bible in 1611. Some of them were further revised. Now, some verses have the first few words of a verse copied out, and then they abruptly stop. Several hands are apparent in Manuscript 98, aside from the original scribe. You have corrections of omissions, spelling, punctuation, and then corrections of corrections. Now, why is this called Manuscript 98? Here is the Lambeth Palace. Manuscript 98 is a Lambeth Palace Library manuscript number. Lambeth Palace is in London near Parliament. It is the residence of the Archbishop of Canterbury, and it has been since the 13th century. The palace also serves as a venue for Church of England events. It is home of the Lambeth Palace Library, which is the historic library and record office of the Archbishops of Canterbury and the principal repository of the documentary history of the Church of England. Its collections have been freely available for research since 1610. Manuscript 98 was discovered in the 1950s where Archbishop Richard Bancroft had placed it in the 17th century. Edwin Willoughby first recognized its significance after being shown this manuscript during a trip to England in the 1950s. He mentions Manuscript 98 in his 1956 book, The Making of the King James Bible. Now, this is a small book. It's a rare book. It's not widely circulated. It's relatively unknown. The reason we know about Manuscript 98 is because of the work of a man named Ward Allen. And here is Ward Allen, my mentor. He's now 93 years old. He's a retired professor of English from Auburn University in Auburn, Alabama. He is the author of three very scholarly books on the history and text of the King James Bible. He is the world's leading authority on the subject. He's also a competent Greek scholar. I've spent many hours at his home when he lived in Auburn discussing with him the history of the King James Bible and the translators. Dr. Allen read about Manuscript 98 in Edwin Willoughby's book, and then he spent years analyzing the manuscript. And here is Ward Allen's book on Manuscript 98. In 1977, he published the results of his analysis of Manuscript 98 along with a transcription of the manuscript. It's called Translating the New Testament Epistles, 1604 to 1611, a manuscript from King James's Westminster Company. Again, this is a rare book. It's not widely circulated. It's relatively unknown. 
We would not know anything about Manuscript 98 without Dr. Allen's pioneering and painstaking work. I have Dr. Allen's copy of Manuscript 98. All right, direct connection number five. This is called the Bodleian Bishop's Bible. The Bodleian Bishop's Bible is the only surviving copy of the 40 large church Bibles that the printer Robert Barker supplied to the King James translators. It is a 1602 Bishop's Bible with annotations made by the King James translators that indicate changes to be made to the Bishop's Bible. It was unbound when the translators worked on it. It was bound at some unknown point in history. And then it was unbound in order to photograph it later in the 20th century. It represents the work of the King James translators at a later stage than Manuscript 98. So what that means is there are more corrections in here that match the 1611 authorized version than you would find with Manuscript 98. It has annotations in the margin of the Old Testament found mainly in the books of Genesis through Song of Solomon and the Minor Prophets. The major prophets contain annotations only in the first four chapters of each book. No annotations appear in Lamentations or the Apocrypha. Annotations in the margin of the New Testament occur in the Synoptic Gospels, John chapters 17 through 21, but then only five scattered references in the epistles. The hand of three scribes in the New Testament is evident, and annotations appear to have been written at different times. Now, I will say more about the Bodley and Bishop's Bible in Lecture 3. But for now, let's answer the question, why is it called the Bodleian Bishop's Bible? Here's the Bodleian Library. This is the main research library of Oxford University. It was founded in 1602 by Thomas Bodley. It is one of the oldest libraries in Europe. It's the second largest library in the United Kingdom after the British Library. It is one of the most famous libraries in the world. It has over 12 million items, books, journals, newspapers, magazines, maps, and manuscripts. The Bodleian Bishop's Bible was purchased by the library in 1646, but its significance was unknown for centuries. It was first mentioned in a book in 1821. It was first listed in the Bodleian Library catalog in 1843. It is described in the second edition of the Annals of the Bodleian Library, published 1890, as, quote, a large Bible wherein is written down all the alterations of the last translation. Now, the Bodleian Bishop's Bible was mentioned in a few books in the 1950s. Ward Allen said that he read of the Bodleian Bishop's Bible in two of those books. After a series of articles about the Bodleian Bishop's Bible by Edward Jacobs, 
in the 1970s, he assisted Dr. Allen in his analysis of the New Testament of the Bodley and Bishop's Bible. And here is Ward Allen's book on the Bodley and Bishop's Bible. It was published in 1995. It's called The Coming of the King James Gospels, a collation of the translator's work in progress. And then further work on the Bodley and Bishop's Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, was done by a man named David Norton. And here's a picture of David Norton. He's a retired English professor from the Victoria University of Wellington in New Zealand. He's another mentor of mine. He writes books on English Bibles and the King James Bible for Cambridge University Press. He is second only to Ward Allen as the world's leading authority on the history and text of the King James Bible. Here he is in his office in New Zealand reading one of my books, The Making of the King James Bible. He sent this to me as a joke. So, The Making of the King James Bible is my book on the connection between the Bishop's Bible and the King James Bible. And I have it out on the book table. Now, here's Norton's book on the King James Bible, A Textual History of the King James Bible. It contains, among other things, his research on the Bodleian Bishop's Bible. It was published by Cambridge University Press in 2005. And here's what I call the Three Stooges. This picture was taken in 2011 in Lexington, Kentucky, and it's the only time that the three of us were ever together in the same place. Now, we are three completely different individuals. I think you can pick out who's Ward Allen. He's 93 now. I think you can recognize me, so that leaves the tall guy as David Norton. So even though we're different individuals, we have something very significant in common. We have devoted the better part of our lives to researching, studying, and writing about the history and text of the King James Bible. All right, direct connection number six. And that is simply internal evidence. In the New Testament of the 1602 Bishop's Bible and the 1611 King James Bible, 2,102 out of 7,957 verses read exactly alike, except for some, some uh, minor differences in spelling. That's 26.4%. Now, many of the verses that differ have only one simple change. 91% of the text is approximately the same. The chapter with the least number of changes is John 3. Only 10 verses out of the 36 verses in John 3 were changed in the King James Bible from the Bishop's Bible. One place in Luke, you'll find 12 verses in a row that read exactly the same in the authorized version as they do in the 1602 Bishop's Bible. So those are the six direct connections between the Bishop's Bible and the authorized version. Now, here is a list of all the facsimile editions and copies of Bibles 
and manuscripts that I have on display for you tonight. This is totally different than what we had last night. I have a copy I've put together of the Bishop's Bible, 1568 first edition and 1602 last edition. I have a copy of Manuscript 98 that belonged to Ward Allen. This is the first rough draft of the King James translators on the epistles. I have for you a copy of the Bodleian Bishop's Bible. It's unbound. The pages are actual size. When you look at this, you are looking at it just as the King James translators looked at it. A 1602 Bishop's Bible page, and you can see where the translators crossed out words and wrote replacement words in the margin. I also have a copy I've put together of the Reims New Testament, 1582. And then I brought with me one volume of the uh, Douay Old Testament, 1609 volume, I think is the one I brought. I have a copy I've done of the Tavener Bible, 1539, that you can look at. I have uh, the third edition of the Coverdale Diglot from 1538. So I have a copy of that for you. Remember, it has the Latin and the English in parallel columns. And then I also have uh, one volume, I believe it's the New Testament volume of the Wycliffe Bible, 1382 and 1388, and it's got both versions in parallel columns. And this was printed in 1850. And when you look at this, the column on the right, I believe, will be easier to read, even though it's still very difficult because it's such old English. But you'll see the difference between the left and right columns as far as the English. Now, I also have a replica page of the first edition Bishop's Bible, so you can actually see the original page size. Now, just as last night, this material is intended to be looked through not just looked at. I encourage you to check the title pages, check the preliminary pages, check the text pages. Look at the artwork, especially in that uh, first edition Bishop's Bible. Look up some verses in all of these versions and compare them with the King James Bible. Look up verses in the 1602 Bishop's Bible and see how close they are to the King James Bible. And again, you can look at all this material in any order. You don't have to start with the oldest. And finally, here are my three books on the King James Bible. And I want to mention especially the one in the middle, The Making of the King James Bible. If you want to get more detail concerning what I've talked about tonight, the relation of the bishops to the King James, then that's the book you want to get. It actually includes a collation of the New Testament of the 1602 Bishop's Bible and the 1611 King James Bible. So this concludes Lecture 2 on the Bishop's Bible and its relationship to the King James Bible. Well, man, that was so interesting. How many of you heard some words that you don't know what they mean tonight? All right, be sure and ask Dr. Vance. So you, you ought to write those down and ask Dr. Vance what they mean and see if he knows.
I think that that would be a good idea. And I will guarantee you that he does. Um, just, it's just fantastic stuff. On that diglot, Laura's from Oklahoma, and she leaned over and said, I thought it was Diglett. And so I thought that was good. Um, it's just fascinating material. And again, this is information that you just can't get. There are several preachers here tonight, Brother Carpenter, Brother Stensis. You guys learned all of this in college, right? You heard every bit of it, right? Yeah, they're, they're both you know, laughing because it's just not covered. And it's really important that we get this. Why is this important? Why are we having this meeting? The Bible says that we're born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. And the most important decision a person will ever make is whether or not to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ for their eternal life. You know, Dr. Vance preached Monday or Sunday morning about the exclusive claims of the Christian faith. The exclusive claims of Jesus Christ. Here's what Jesus said in John 14, 6. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. It's very important that we understand this. There's only one way to go to heaven. And the simple fact is all of us will either go to heaven or we'll go to hell. And it's based not on what God has done. It's not based on, you know, God chose some people for heaven and some people for hell. It's based on whether or not we receive the free gift of eternal life that Jesus Christ has offered us by believing on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says in Romans, it says this, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. He mentioned how John chapter 3 is the same in the Bishop's Bible as it is in the King James Bible. And that is the chapter that says you must be born again. You must be born again. So here's my question. Are you born again? If you died today, are you 100% sure that you would go to heaven? If you're not, you can. 1 John 5.13, it says, But these are written to you that believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you might know that you have eternal life. Isn't it good that you can know? So if you're here tonight and you're not sure whether or not you're going to go to heaven when you die, man, just come to me. Pastor Nathan is in the back. Wave your hand. How many of you here would know how to tell someone how to go to heaven? Would you raise your hands? Man, if you don't know, find one of these people, and they'll tell you how you can know for sure that you're going to heaven. That you're going to heaven. Here's the thing that's so important. You know, we don't think we're any better than anybody else. We're just beggars who've shown other beggars where we found bread, and Jesus Christ is the bread of life. So if you don't know for sure that you're going to heaven, don't leave here tonight in that condition. Tonight could be the first day, the first day of your eternal life. What a blessing that would be. I'm so glad that you all came tonight. Let's all stand together. We're going to be dismissed. Don't forget to check out the display room back there. And um, I hope that you really enjoy it. Okay, remember the instruction from last night. Control your young. All right. Those, those materials. Let me just say a couple of things. Um, manuscript 98, this is material that no one ever sees. No one ever sees it. You get to see it tonight. Ward Allen gave his copy to Dr. Vance. This is material that you really need to see. And then that, um, the Bodleian Bishop's Bible, the, the notes, he has it. You can actually look and hold a page. It's a copy of it, but it is an actual copy 
of what the King James translators would have held in their hands. And so it's really cool that you get to do that.